The world of ministry to teenagers can offer a full range of emotion, interesting challenges, rewarding victories, and discouraging difficulty. It is important to remember that the work we do with students is vital. It is good to be reminded that what you do matters and is appreciated. We hope that the time you spend here will encourage you and equip you to hit the mark in life and ministry. Welcome to the Scope Host Podcast, impacting youth ministry in Oklahoma and beyond. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Scopos Podcast. In this week's episode, we're listening in to Lena Abujamra as she talks about the importance of making disciples in our lives as believers. Amen. Amen. It's so awesome to worship the Lord with you. My name is Lena Abujamra. I'm still working on saying my last name, so don't worry if you can't pronounce it. It's awesome uh, to be back in uh, Falls Creek. I have been here with the women's meetings a few times and love my time there. Some of the women I know we've met before, so it's awesome to be back. And uh, sorry, guys, they drug you into this for better or for worse, right? So we're going to have a great time. Open your Bibles, if you don't mind, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, not your typical discipleship evangelism section, but where the Lord has led me in this afternoon. We've got just a few minutes together. I pray that they will be beneficial. I really am so grateful for the hospitality that I've consistently found here. For those of you who have trusted me from the BGCO to come and share God's word, God called me to ministry when I was doing my fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine. So if I walk along a lot and I look a little hyper and guys, you're like, I just can't take her. Just remember, I'm an ER doctor first and, and God called me to this and I don't know how God works. It's a mysterious still. Someday in heaven, we'll ask him and it will all make sense. Until then, we will struggle with teenagers, right? Those of you who are youth pastors, I've got uh, many nieces and nephews, but two of them live down the street from me and they're 14 and 16. And God bless every one of you. Uh, my sister wants to kill them disown them, ship them to you, do any of those in the context of discipleship. (laughs) She loves Jesus and everybody in my family, in my immediate family loves Jesus and still it is a challenge to raise teenagers. I really believe that the great lack in the American church right now is a lack in discipleship which is crazy. It seems like that is what we ought to be doing. Jesus gave us one job and it is to be disciples. And so you might be thinking, man, she's not a pastor. She's speaking to us. She's a doctor. And yet every single one of us in this room is called to be disciple makers. We know that and we believe it and we sing it and we know what we stand for. And yet you and I know that as soon as you leave here, you'll be on the spiritual high for a day, maybe two days, and then you will hit the lulls, the Eeyores, Every one of us here has our seasons in the wilderness, seasons of Eeyores. I know those seasons well. After 18 to 20 years in the ministry, what I would call vocational ministry now, God has given me chances after chances to to speak his word, to do Bible studies, to write books, all that you would consider real ministry, not just like, like serving in a church, but doing real ministry. Yet I find myself over and over again sitting in my cubicle or sitting in my room or, or, or laying in bed and going, my God, am I crazy? Is this really what you called me to? It's amazing to me how quickly we question the Great Commission as we're living it, even though we know exactly what God has called us to, so that today you might be on a high, you might be feeling like you're untouchable, you're going to go back and make awesome disciples, and that jerk of a teenager in your youth group is going to somehow have revival. And listen to me, he will. Notice I said he, not she. Could be a she. (laughs) 
But the truth of it is that we will question our calling over and over again. And so I don't think it is any surprise that as I myself have walked in the same lanes of you have, uh, that God led me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, probably because I need that over and over again. And I called today's session, what you need to know about making disciples or what you cannot afford to forget about making disciples. You have the facts, you've got to umpteen workshops, you are full to the brim physically and spiritually. And right before you leave this afternoon, I think it is critical to stop for a moment and learn from arguably the greatest disciple maker, the Apostle Paul. I love the Apostle Paul. His writings have been instrumental in discipling me because we love the word of God, but there's something about the Apostle Paul. He has a way with words. He has a way to say it that is just untouchable, and you read it, and you go, man, why do I keep forgetting? This is what he taught us, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you read a passage of scripture that I believe is essential to making disciples, and so I want to read through verse 7 to verse 10 here, just a few verses. Many of you know and love these verses. You might know them by heart, but listen to me as I read here in the SV. Paul writes, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, now if you read earlier in 2 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul lists the ways that he was persecuted for the faith. And so you think, man, this guy is the furthest thing from being cocky for the gospel. The guy is like beaten and jeered and, and imprisoned and everything that can go along with that. And yet he's aware of his own weaknesses. And so he, he has a situation and we don't know what it is. Y'all are very familiar with this, but he says in verse eight, this is essential. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I love those verses, and, but I hate those verses because I want an easy way out. I want the ER version of fix it, God. And yet isn't it true that over and over again we have found ourselves in the place of the Apostle Paul and so it is essential that you and I keep in mind as we leave this afternoon what we need to remember in order to go home and make disciples. Number one is this, my brokenness is my greatest asset in making disciples. My brokenness is my greatest asset in making disciples. Paul finds himself in a situation where he has an unwanted problem in his life. And if you know anything about brokenness, inevitably it comes through trials that you do not want, that you did not ask for, that you in fact might be begging God to remove from your life. But instead you feel broken and your life may look broken and, and I'm guarantee you that if the Apostle Paul sat somewhere to write these words, that if he found in his life that that brokenness was essential to making disciples, that I promise you the model is laid out for us that God wants us to see in our brokenness not a curse, not something to get away from, but a position to live in in order to be disciple makers. Think about the things that have been edifying, profitable, life transforming in the lives of those in your life. And inevitably it is the areas of pain in your life that you wish would never happen. I think about my own call to ministry and how the entire 
propelling of my call to ministry came out of immense personal brokenness. I, I grew up, I'm a, I'm a youth group brat, if you want to call me that. My parents took me to church as young as I can remember in Beirut, Lebanon. You know, it turns out you can make disciples in Beirut, Lebanon. And so they took us to church and, and we were discipled in Sunday school. And then we went to youth group. And at, at, at the age of 15, I went to Green Bay, Wisconsin, of all places. And, and even in Green Bay, I kept continuing in this path of discipleship through men and women like yourselves who rolled their sleeves up and, and gave up your Friday nights and your Sunday afternoons and your midweek times. And, and we were those generation that would go to church all the time and little by little we grew into what God was making us to be and and so I showed up I did what I was supposed to do I said what I was supposed to do I was a room keeper and my heart wasn't God was changing my heart but I got to a point in my life where even though I was doing what I was supposed to do it didn't seem like God was pulling his weight in it it happened when I went to residency I had I had obeyed the Lord in my, in my singleness and I was obedient to him in my relationships. I didn't date a lot. And then I went to residency and I got engaged. And two weeks before the wedding, I ended the engagement. And all of a sudden, it didn't matter how much you knew, I found myself devastated with a broken heart. And, and out of that, I ended up moving to a new town to do my fellowship. And I'm telling you, I had no idea at that point that I would ever be anywhere near Oklahoma City in the middle of November, let alone in a camp. Sure enough, many of your lives have been radically transformed by God because of your time here. And so here I found myself in a place where I, I had no clue that I would end up being in, in the ministry. I thought ministry for a doctor was to be a, 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 an EO, a doctor somewhere in, the, in Africa. I thought I'd go to Africa and be a missionary doctor. And, and the doors kept closing. And now I found myself training to be a fellow, utterly devastated over the brokenness that was my personal life, even though I had done what I was supposed to do in order to live by the rules that God has, had established it was in that season that God started revealing himself to me as a, as a lover of his children, as a father of the brokenhearted, as a, as, a, as a friend of the one who has no friends. I was in a new town. I was doing great professionally, and yet I found myself alone, and God started revealing his word to me in fresh ways, and it was in that season that God used the local church. In fact, it is an irony that it turned out to be Sunday school that saved my life. The teacher from Sunday school came to visit. It was an adult Sunday school at that point, but the same principle of this one-on-one -on -one discipleship where she came to visit me in my, in my state of disarray, and it was out of that that I started teaching a Sunday school class which led to eventually the ministry that is today what it is today. And, and, and today the ministry is, is far different than anything I would have expected it to be. In fact, I'm still single today and God has used that aspect of my brokenness, if you want to call it that, for some singles, it's a rejoicing. Praise God if you're single and you love it. No one, okay. <laughs> Nobody's single in Falls Creek anyway. Everybody's married in Oklahoma. <laughs> And yet God has seen fit in my life to show me over and over again that it is often in our very areas of brokenness that God takes that which looks irreparable and puts it back together. And that when you go home and you're trying to minister to your young men and women that what God doesn't expect from you is to give them a perfect story. He wants you to give them an authentic story. 
He wants you to give them a real story of what a savior who shed his blood for us could do for us. And so, so you don't have to fix your life so much that there's no flaws so that when you show up to youth group, you're untouchable. No, on the contrary, you show up in your brokenness. You might be hurting in your marriages, but, but trusting the Lord to heal. You might, you might be single and hurting in your singleness, but honest about where you're at. You might have kids that are not walking in the way that you hoped they would walk. You might have financial situations or health situations and you're broken in them and you, you're pleading with God. And, and maybe it's time for you before you head back out to stop and say, God, it might be that you want to use that brokenness to show the world who you really are. Someone so precious that even if those things remain broken, my faith stands strong. Do you see it? My brokenness is my greatest asset in making disciples. In the last 20 years of, of ministering, I found that my singleness has been one of the leading ways of connecting with people in ministry. It is our brokenness that will earn us the right to be heard by young. By the way, all of you know that men and women right now who are teenagers, the rates, of, I, I, a year ago, I quit the ER to do telemedicine so that I can do more ministry. I'm traveling more and speaking more. And our, our global work in Lebanon with Syrian refugees has exploded in the past four years. And so as that's kind of trying to figure out how to do that and practice medicine, I've, I've transitioned into telemedicine and I, I, I was going to do a shift in the ER this month. And so I was talking to the people back at work and I said, how's it been? They go, man, you wouldn't believe we're setting records. I go, in what? They go in, in how many admissions to the mental hospital we have. It's sobering. The majority of those are from the pediatric ER. See, kids to 21 and the rates of depression and anxiety and cutting and suicide is huge. You can blame the cell phones. You can blame Steve Jobs. You can blame social media. You can blame a number of things. But the truth of it is this is what we have right now in our generation, in our time. I promise you that as daunting as those problems sound, you might be a guy from Northeast Oklahoma, a town that I've never heard of before, and you might have no concept how to counsel a 14-year-old girl who cuts every night. They're not looking for you to know about that. They're looking for you to be open and authentic about your own areas of brokenness. This is why I believe this passage of scripture is so powerful in the area of discipleship because the apostle Paul writes and we connect with him. There's something about an apostle who's hurting. Say, so how bad was he hurting? Well, he didn't want his problems, whatever it was that he was dealing with, he kept asking God to Get, take it away. He kept praying, God, please take it away. And if you're the apostle Paul and you're praying, think about the, the weight of that prayer. It's certainly better than my prayers. This guy knew how to pray. And God kept saying, no, no, no. And I don't know how your lives are and how your prayer lives are, but if God says no to me 350 times, like after all, I'm like, I'm not praying anymore. I don't know about this God. And yet the Apostle Paul learns another lesson that we cannot forget, which is this. My willingness to say yes to God in whatever he asks me to give him Wait, the grammar I got to review. My willingness to say yes to God is all that he asks me to give him in order to be used by him. My willingness to say yes to God is all he asks of me to be used by him. He just wants you to say yes, my favorite teaching of all times, Jill Briscoe. I went to a conference with her about a year ago and she made this point which sums up what this verse says, which is your willingness to say yes to God. Listen, it's one thing to say yes to God when God is inviting you on an adventure. 
Hey, I want you to lead the youth group. Your pastor brings you into the office and says, dude, I've watched you. You're a great disciple. You're maturing in the faith, you know, which you don't know at the time that this is like a, this is a plot against you. you you're just honored because you're being chosen out of the bunch. And, and he's like, I, I think you should you lead the youth group. You'll be an amazing youth and young adult leader. And you're like, man, this is amazing. It's easy to say yes when the invitation, listen, it's easy to say yes when I get a call that says, will you come and speak at False Creek? It's hard to say yes to God's no's. Jill Briscoe taught that in an hour-long session, and it sums up what Paul is trying to tell us, which is we've got to learn that surrender is saying yes to God's no's. You got to learn to say yes to God's no's. You got to learn to say yes Lord, when he tells you, no, I'm not going to do this. There's a thorn. I'm aware of it. I know it. I see it. I hear you. But the answer is no. Will you still raise your hands in worship on Monday morning when you've, your tears are staining the pages of your journal? You can't understand where God is. You watch other people and their prayers are being answered and their youth group is getting saved and revival is happening and they're growing and you're begging God, God, why isn't anything happening here? And God's like, for you today, it's a no. Surrender is the willingness to say yes to God's no's. That's what Paul's talking about here. God says, you're, you're not gonna have this thorn removed. And how many of us have read these verses in scripture and thought, we rejoice in the Lord that the apostle Paul Never got his yes in this area because at least we see how somebody who is a, a model disciple maker who is a lover of Jesus can still write these words and still impact us greatly, not because he saw some miraculous answer to prayer, but because despite God's nose, he persevered. So how did Paul do it? It's what we were just singing. You see, God, Paul's eyes weren't on his problem. Paul's eyes were on the Lord. Paul's eyes were on a God who had already given him everything so that it didn't matter if there was a yes or a no. Maybe it mattered a bit because he's writing about it and he's pouring his heart to us. Amen. This was a hard situation in my life, but I was willing to surrender to bend the knee and say, God, you do what you want. This area of brokenness is what you've had for me in my life. I'll take it and see you use it in making disciples. What do you think your youth group is watching? Do you think that their faith hinges on your getting your dream wedding if you're single? Do you think that their faith is resting on you making a million bucks when you sign up for the lottery? I mean, we really think that we're, we're so prosperity driven in our culture that we think that if we don't get the likes, we don't get the follows, we don't get the growth that everybody else expects us to get, that something is amiss. And yet, I can't think of one thing that anyone that I followed in when I was being disciples as a child, I don't even remember what they used to do on the outside, but I remember their character. I remember Harry and Miriam Taylor, the couple who was so old back when I was a child, and then they lived another 30 years after that. And they were faithful back in Lebanon. They had been faithful before that in Cambodia, and then they moved to Florida. And I remember being in my, in my after my fellowship, I went and started practicing. One time I was down in Ocala, and my mom said, no, that's where Harry and Miriam Taylor live. And I thought, man, they're still alive. I got in my car and drove out to see them. And they were so old. And they still worship the Lord. They have no books written after them. They didn't have social media. They served in countries. You can't even place Cambodia on a map. I know I can't. It's somewhere there in the east. 
but God knows them. You saw that was coming. Fall Creek's ladies know that that was coming. In fact, Katie, you were worried about that. She said, you need to go check out the platform. I move around a lot. God knows them, and today they're sitting in the heavens worshiping Jesus. Did they say yes to God's nose at some point or another in their life? I guarantee you they did. You know, it's funny, back in the 80s, they were pastoring the church in Lebanon, and it was growing, and it was, it was good, and, and the war was exploding back where, where I lived in, in my days, back the Civil War in, in Lebanon in those days. And in 1982, President Reagan asked all of the Americans to leave Lebanon, and I wonder how much pain they felt as they had to pack up their bags. They had survived through the 60s, the 70s, and into 1982 in Lebanon, their heart's desire was to serve the people and make disciples. My mom got saved in college in a family that was not following Jesus. They were Greek Orthodox in name, and it was very radical for her to accept Christ. And, and she landed in that church after getting saved. They discipled my mom. My mom took us to that church. I'm a Christian today because of Reverend Harry and Miriam Taylor. In 1982, they had to leave. They never went back to Lebanon. That was a no that they received from the Lord. And yet it was at that point that my dad started coming to church and we moved down the street to another church, the only other church in my town and my dad got saved at the hands of that pastor who was Lebanese and how God worked the details of that story are beyond the time limit for me to sit and explain to you the dynamics right now. But you see, when God says no to what we want, sometimes there's a bigger reason. John Piper always says that there's 10,000 things happening while we're focused on the one. So you might be so focused on the problem that you have and you can't understand why God's not fixing it and yet there's a million people around you watching you, talking about you, telling your story. I myself have followed stories. By the way, there's been people in the BGCO that I followed on Facebook, the couple who's the pastor who had cancer and recently died and his wife keeps posting and she radiates the love of Jesus. And I think, man, there's brokenness there. We live in a broken world and yet God is using this brokenness to change Lives. You must never forget that. My brokenness is my greatest asset in making disciples. My willingness to say yes to God is all he asks me to give him in order to be used by him. And then number three is this. My resting in his grace is the key to living in the transformational power of the gospel. We are not trying to get people to change their minds on stuff. We're, what discipleship is, 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 is far, far more intense than that. We're not, we're not trying to get them to change their opinion. We're not trying to get them to change their behaviors. Discipleship is about letting the Spirit of God so radically change a human being that everything about him changes. The only way that that can happen, that takes the transformational power of the gospel. And the only way that that can happen is by understanding and living in the grace of God. See, man, how did Paul do this? So he has a problem. He comes to God and he asks God three times. God says, no, no, no. But God doesn't leave him hanging. See, if I just ended the message on point number two, you might feel like, okay, well, I'm saying no. God's saying no. I'm saying yes. But, but that's not the end of the story. God says, I am going to give you something. It's a five-letter word. It's grace. And God pours grace upon grace on Paul. Every one of us in this room, you, you can't be in this room if you've not committed your life 
to follow Jesus. You wouldn't be on a beautiful weekend like this is today, the opening day of, of, of hunting in Oklahoma. I understand it. I thought half of you, many of you look like hunters. I don't know. I'm from Wisconsin, but I think the facial hair qualifies over here. And, and so I was pleasantly surprised that some guys were still here. I thought everybody in Oklahoma would be out hunting. But, but listen to me. God gives us grace. And so a moment ago, we're singing about his grace. And every one of us who claims Jesus is our Savior felt the weight and the freedom and the preciousness of the songs that were chosen to us, didn't you? I don't know about you, but it didn't matter what you brought in the room a few minutes ago when we sang about the grace of God. Something exploded in your heart, didn't it? Man, people sometimes say, man, the hairs on my arms stood it's like goosebumps. And, and I, you know, we're not touchy-feely here with Southern Baptists, right? But, but there is something supernatural that happens when you rest all of your attention on the grace of God. And the grace of God is who? It is Jesus. The grace of God is Jesus. It is his sacrifice on the cross. It is his saying to us, man, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. How many days do you wake up and go, man, I can't go to youth group. You don't know how my week has been. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've thought. You don't, and you know better and you don't want to be that. And so you're wrestling constantly with the flesh and with sin and with, the, with the, that husband of yours and with that child of yours. And you know what your life is like. And you think, I don't deserve to go lead these kids. How do you do it? A five-letter word. Grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. A girl emailed me this week and brokenhearted, you could hear it in her voice in the email. She says, man, I love your ministry. Your teachings has been so, so helpful to me. And she, she went on to tell me her story and what she struggles with. And she has this eating issue and she eats and eats and eats. And, and she says, man, I hate it. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want victory, but I just can't. And, 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 and please pray for me. And she goes, and by the way, if you have any words of wisdom, I'd love if you share them. You know what God says to tell her? Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm as Baptist as they come. I don't hear God. I, I bemoan that. I'm always jealous. Like, I wish I had dreams. I had, now I spent time in Lebanon and all of the Muslims are having dreams and visions. I'm like, why not me? Bring it, Lord. I'd like to have that. But that's not, how, but as sure as I heard a whisper of the Spirit, I, I replied and right within seconds, it's like the Spirit of God says, remind her where grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. We're so good at condemning ourselves, aren't we? We count ourselves out of ministry. We count ourselves out of discipleship because we're not perfect. Newsflash, that's why we need Jesus. Never forget it. Today you're on a high. You've been sitting in meetings. You've journaled. You've even memorized a verse. And, and, and you've talked about stuff. And you've prayed together. And you feel like a Christian. You know what I'm talking about? You leave a retreat and you actually feel like a Christian. But it might not be the case in a week. You might be in Tulsa. Or back in Chicago. Or in Missouri. Or wherever it is you're from. And you might be going, man, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Grace is what keeps us going when we feel like stopping. Grace is what propels me to go on when I want to quit. Grace is what gives me perspective when everything in my life looks confusing. What you need is not the answer, though the answer would be nice, but what we need is his grace. 
in the moment, even when the answer doesn't come. Grace is what settles my heart when I feel stuck and insecure. Maybe you're here and you're still debating whether you're going to do the thing that you told your pastor you're going to do. Maybe you're thinking of going back and quitting. But you're not sure. You're seeking the Lord. You're asking for wisdom. Grace is what you need in this season of feeling stuck. Grace is not about getting what I want, but receiving exactly what I need. Grace is ours always, 24-7. It makes no sense. Listen, the longer I'm a Christian, the more bizarre the concept of grace becomes to me because it's almost too good to be true. And yet it's true. I mean, when you're a young Christian, you, you do things that you're not supposed to do and you, and you, and you make mistakes and you figure, well, it's because I just don't know enough. I mean, who, can, who cannot forgive a four-year-old who, who just makes the same mistakes over and over again? But the older you are, the more you know. So now I hear my sister saying to the 16-year-old nephew, like, Micah, you know better. You shouldn't be doing this. And it's harder in those settings to receive grace. And yet if you're here and you've been a Christian for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, grace is yours in abundance. It's a scandal of grace. What you need to know about making disciples, your brokenness is your greatest asset. Your willingness to say yes to God's no's is all he asks. Your resting in his grace is the key to living in the transformational power of the gospel. And the number four is this, my communion with Christ is the only thing that I need to be an effective and persevering disciple maker. Can we talk about that for a minute? Do you know I love this passage that the Apostle Paul writes for us? You see it in all of Paul's writing, but you see it here even more. You see a man who is with Christ. You see a man who is abiding in communion. You see a man whose first response to his problem is not to call everybody in their prayer circle as noble as that might be. You see a man who's not venting on Facebook and on Twitter. You see a man who's not skipping out on stuff. You see a man on his knees in communion with God Almighty. That has always been Paul's asset, Paul's strength, Paul's secret is that he had such unbroken communion, such uncommon communion with God that nothing would stand in his way. He could be in prison. He was like, I'm in prison for Jesus. I'm his prisoner. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. He could be on a mountaintop speaking to, to the emperor and he could still be like, it doesn't matter who I'm speaking. He, could, he, he had an invitation when he spoke with, with the emperor. He was like, you can get saved too now. You want to get saved? The emperor's like, man, you almost had me. If he had the band from tonight, he'd have gone saved. But Paul had a secret and it was his communion with the Lord. Do you, do you want to know what I believe is the greatest crisis that we Christian workers have? We're really good at working for Jesus, but we stink at abiding in him, at communion with him. Oh, we get really good at making Bible studies and we get really good at creating curriculum and, and, and networking with other pastors and, and going to small groups and creating situations and, and, and ways for our kids to, to get discipled. That we get really good at doing the work that God has called us to, but our souls slowly become dying when we're not in communion with Jesus. There's no quick fix, newsflash, there is no quick fix, there's no pill, the BGCO does not have a magic bullet that you can take to abide. There's only one way to do it, you get up earlier and you stay on your knees longer. 
We hear it, we know it. We read about men and women who modeled that, who are, who are heroes of the faith, but, but we still don't do it. And it all kind of goes full circle because do you know what gets us back on our knees? That thorn in the flesh, our utter brokenness. When God says no, and we're begging for a yes. I, I, I sometimes feel like, man, I've, I've done this for a while. Like the longer I've walked with God, the easier it should be, right? It should just be natural. And, 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 and I should just know these things. It should be automatic. But I found that on the opposite, quite the opposite, it's sort of like the John 21 phenomenon. Remember Peter? I, I think it's worth for a second going there because I think this is the model of, of, of how we should live our lives. In John chapter 21, after Peter is restored to ministry, he'd, he'd fallen and he'd gone fishing and, and now Jesus brings him back. They have breakfast. He restores him. Everything is great. And then Jesus speaks these words in verse 18. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Do you know what that picture is? That's a picture of dependence. Have you, ever, have you ever had a loved one get old or become handicapped and you have to change their clothes? You know how humiliating that is for that person? There's a humbleness that happens. My dad was a plastic surgeon. He passed away three and a half years ago. And in the last two months of his life, things went quickly down physically. He had renal failure from diabetes. He was on dialysis for two years. He did great. His mind never deteriorated until the day he died. But, but two months before, his physical capacity started going down. And he's a doctor, so he understood all of that. And, and I'm telling you, I, it was humiliating for him to walk through that. And yet, that's what he wants us to do, in dependence on him. Not, not, I was going to say, not to be humiliated, but, but to a certain degree, humiliated to be closer to Jesus. And, and, I, and I use this word cautiously, but there's a certain emptiness of all pride that is needed in order to abide. To wake up in the morning and understand that no matter how hard I work today, no matter how hard I try today, I will not be able to do this job well enough. But God, you dress me. As humiliating as it is, I need you. And you're gonna go out today. Some of you, your stories will be told by millions. Others of you, you will never have your name. Your mom might not remember your name. Does that feel like that sometimes? I'm gonna end with a story I told, recently came across. You ever heard of the man Edward Kimball? I have to look it up every time I tell it because I just forget. And this guy, Edward Kimball, lived back in, I don't know, 16 or 1700s, and he was a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader. And this guy was so shy and unspoken, and he just like barely was there. But his kids, they were an unruly group of teenagers, and, and he had it in his heart because he lived a life of disciple-making, and he wanted to do these things that pleased the Lord. And he prayed in, in his prayer time once, and, and he felt like God said, man, just go and make sure every one of your boys knows Jesus. And so one day he went down to a shoe store, and he found the young man that he was the most unruly of the bunch, and he waited outside. He was so shy, the story says that he didn't want to go in. He almost left. He's like, no, God doesn't want me to do this, but he goes into the store and he mumbles some words and, and the guy at the shoe store, of course you might be familiar with the story, was Dwight L. Moody. 
Well, the guy leaves, Edward Kimball leaves, and he thinks that he's made no impact on, on Dwight L. Moody, but that day was the pivotal change in Dwight L. Moody. He gave his life to Jesus, and he became the D.L. Moody that we know and love. The story goes on to say that D.L. Moody had a revival service and in it a man named J. Wilbur Chapman was converted at one of D.L. Moody's evangelistic meetings. Great, I've never heard of Wilbur Chapman, have you? That guy, William Wilbur Chapman, ended up having an evangelistic service himself because he became a preacher. And a man named Billy Sunday that you and I are probably a bit more familiar with, well, he was converted at that meeting. Billy Sunday would go on and have a, a revival meeting and a man named Mordecai Ham became a Christian through it and Mordecai Ham followed Christ's call to become a preacher, an evangelist, a disciple maker. Again, you and I might be barely familiar with Mordecai Ham, but one day, not long ago, actually just a few decades ago, Mordecai Ham made it into North Carolina. And in North Carolina, Mordecai Ham preached a service and who do you know was in that service but a young boy named Billy. Billy, of course, today so well known as Billy Graham, just died this year and they're told over half a million people accepted Christ through his ministry. Millions, millions heard the gospel through Billy Graham, but it all started with a man named, remember his name? Gotta look it up again because I can barely remember. Edward Kimball. Some of you here in this room will grow up to be Billy Graham's. May God make all of the young men here, Billy Graham's. Some of you though are Edward Kimball's. You've been working, you've been plowing, you've been living by God's grace. Dude, don't give up. You wanna be a disciple maker, you live in God's nose. You accept the brokenness, you extend your arms in dependence and you receive of his grace over and over and over again. Women, you do the same. Discipleship is an equal opportunity, exercise, privilege, and gift. So as you leave the doors of this retreat center today, may God bless you with the ability to stay where God has put you, to finish the job that God has called you to, to fulfill the ministry that is an honor for us to be walking in. It is a gift for us to be doing the things that we're doing, to be able to see lives transformed for the sake of the gospel. And so God, we thank you that you are alive and at work, that you are good, that your mercy is everlasting, that your faithfulness reaches to the heavens. God, we thank you that you have called us to serve you in this fashion, that you have invited us to watch you change lives. God, we thank you that in this journey of, of challenges and trials, you have given us more than we even need. You've given us your grace. You've given us your presence. You've given us your love. Father, I thank you that you've given us one another. I ask, Father, that you would set Oklahoma and Texas and whatever else state is represented here, that you would set us on fire, that you would bring revival through the men and women in this room. God, our country needs it so desperately. Lord, I pray for the youth that are represented in this room. I ask that your hand would be on them, that you would soften their hearts, that even this week we would start to see the fruit of the prayers that have been cast in this retreat. God, we pray believing, Lord, it is easy to to get weary in prayer, but God, we want to be resilient in our faith. So God, strengthen us, uplift us, uphold us, but mostly allow us to see the magnificence of who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Scopos and the Scopos Podcast are ministries of the BGCO and made available through the generous gifts of Oklahoma Baptists to the cooperative program. Find out more about Oklahoma Youth Ministry at scopos.org. Thank you.